Second Part, Chapter One of Essay on the Creative Imagination. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Essay on the Creative Imagination by Theodule Ribot. Second Part: The Development of the Imagination. Chapter One: Imagination in Animals. Up to this point, the imagination has been treated analytically only. This process alone would give us but a very imperfect idea of its essentially concrete and lively nature were we to stop here. So this part continues the subject in another shape. I shall attempt to follow the imagination in its ascending development from the lowest to the most complex forms, from the animal to the human infant, to primitive man, thence to the highest modes of invention. It will thus be exhibited in the inexhaustible variety of its manifestations, which the abstract and simplifying process of analysis does not permit us to suspect. 1. I shall not dwell at length on the imagination of animals, not only because the question is much involved, but also because it is hardly liable to be a positive solution. Even eliminating mere anecdotes and doubtful observations, there is no lack of verified and authentic material, but it still remains to interpret them. As soon as we begin to conjecture, we know how difficult it is to divest ourselves of all anthropomorphism. The question has been formulated, even if not treated, with much system by Romains in his Mental Evolution in Animals. Taking imagination in its broadest sense, he recognizes four stages. 1. Provoked revival of images. For example, the sight of an orange reminds one of its taste. This is a low form of memory, resting on association by contiguity. It is met with very far down in the animal scale, and the author furnishes abundant proof of it. 2. Spontaneous revival. An object present calls up an absent object. This is a higher form of memory, frequent in ants, bees, wasps, etc., which fact explains the mistrustful sagacity of wild animals. At night, the distant baying of a hound stops the fox in his course, because all the dangers he has undergone are represented in his mind. These two stages do not go beyond memory, pure and simple, that is, reproductive imagination. The other two constitute the higher imagination. 3. The capacity of associating absent images with suggestion derived from without through an internal working of the mind. It is the lower and primitive form of the creative imagination, which may be called a passive synthesis. In order to establish its existence, Romains reminds us that dreams have been proven in dogs, horses, and a large number of birds, that certain animals, especially in anger, seem to be subject to delusions and pursued by phantoms, and lastly, that in some there is produced a condition resembling nostalgia, expressing itself in a violent desire to return to former haunts, or in a wasting away resulting from the absence of accustomed persons and things. All these facts, especially the latter, can hardly be explained without a vivid recollection of the images of previous life. 4. The highest stage consists of intentionally reuniting images in order to make novel combinations from them. This may be called an active synthesis, and is the true creative imagination. Is this sometimes found in the animal kingdom? Romains very clearly replies, no, and not without offering a plausible reason. For creation, says he, there must first be capacity for abstraction, and, without speech, abstraction is very weak. One of the conditions for creative imagination is thus wanting in the higher animals. We here come to one of those critical moments, so frequent in animal psychology, when one asks, is this character exclusively human, or is it found in embryo in lower forms? Thus it has been possible to support a theory opposing that of Romains. Certain animals, says Ulzop Nguyen, 
fulfill all the conditions necessary for creative imagination, subtle senses, good memory, and appropriate emotional states. This assertion is perhaps true, but it is purely dialectic. It is equivalent to saying that the thing is possible. It does not establish it as a fact. Besides, is it very certain that all the conditions for creative imagination are present here, since we have just shown that there is a lack of abstraction? The author, who voluntarily limits his study to birds and the construction of their nests, maintains, against Wallace and others, that nest-building requires the mysterious synthesis of representations. We might with equal reason bring the instances of other building animals, bees, wasps, white ants, the common ants, beavers, etc. It is not unreasonable to attribute to them an anticipated representation of their architecture. Shall we say that it is instinctive, consequently unconscious? At least may we not group under this head changes and adaptations to new conditions which these animals succeed in applying to the typical plans of their construction? Observations and even systematic experiments, like those of Huber, Farrell, and others, show that, reduced to the alternative of the impossibility of building or the modification of their habits, certain animals modify them. Judging from this, how refuse them invention altogether? This contradicts in no way the very just reservation of Romaine's it is sufficient to remark that abstraction or dissociation has stages, that the simplest are accessible to the animal intelligence. If, in the absence of words, the logic of concepts is forbidden it, there yet remains the logic of images, which is sufficient for slight innovations. In a word, animals can invent according to the extent that they can dissociate. In our opinion, if we may with any truthfulness attribute a creative power to animals, we must seek it elsewhere. Generally speaking, we attribute only a mediocre importance to a manifestation that might very well be the proper form of animal fancy. It is purely motor, and expresses itself through the various kinds of play. Although play may be as old as mankind, its psychology dates only from the nineteenth century. We have already seen that there are three theories concerning its nature. It is expenditure of superfluous activity, a mending, restoring of strength, a recuperation, an apprenticeship, a preliminary exercise for the active functions of life and for the development of our natural gifts. The last position, due to Gruss, does not rule out the other two. It holds the first valid for the young, the second for adults, but it comprehends both in a more general explanation. Let us leave this doctrinal question in order to call attention to the variety and richness of form of play in the animal world. In this respect, the aforementioned book of Gruss is a rich mine of evidence to which I would refer the reader. I limit myself to summing up his classification. He distinguishes nine classes of play, namely, one, those that are at bottom experimental, consisting of trials at hazard without immediate end, often giving the animal a certain knowledge of the properties of the external world. This is the introduction to an experimental physics, optics, and mechanics for the brood of animals. Two, movements or changes of place executed of their own accord, a very general fact, as is proven, by the incessant movements of butterflies, flies, birds, and even fishes, which often appear to play in the water rather than to seek prey, the mad running of horses, dogs, etc., in free space. 3. Mimicry of hunting, that is, playing with a living or dead prey, the dog and cat following moving objects, a ball, feather, etc. 4. Mimic battles, teasing and fighting without anger. 5. Architectural art, revealing itself especially in the building of nests. Certain birds ornament them with shining objects, stones, bits of glass, 
by a kind of anticipation of the aesthetic feeling six doll play is universal in mankind whether civilized or savage Groose believes he has found its equivalent in certain animals seven imitation through pleasure so familiar in monkeys grimaces singing birds which counterfeit the voices of a large number of beasts eight curiosity which is the only mental play one meets in animals the dog watching from a window or wall what is going on in the street nine love plays which differ from the others in that they are not mere exercises but have in view a real object they have been well known since darwin's time he attributing them to an aesthetic value which has been denied by wallace tyler lord morgan wallace check and Groose. let us recapitulate in thought the immense quantity of motor expressions included in these nine categories and let us note that they have the following characters in common they are grouped in combinations that are often new and unforeseen they are not a repetition of daily life acts necessary for self-preservation at one time the movements are combined simultaneously exhibition of beautiful colors again and most often successively amorous parades fights flight dancing emission of noises sounds or songs but under one form or another there is creation invention here the imagination acts in its purely motor character it consists of a small number of images that become translated into actions and serve as a center for their grouping perhaps even the image itself is hardly conscious so that all is limited to a spontaneous production and a collection of motor phenomena it will doubtless be said that this form of imagination belongs to a very shallow poor psychology it cannot be otherwise it is necessary that imaginative production be found reduced to its simplest expression in animals and the motor form must be its special characteristic mark it cannot have any others for the following reasons incapacity for the work that necessarily precedes abstraction or dissociation breaking into bits the data of experience making them raw material for the future construction lack of images and especially fewness of possible combinations of images this last point is proven alike from the data of animal psychology and of comparative anatomy we know that the nervous elements in the brain serving as connections between sensory regions whether one conceive of them as centers physic, or as bundles of commiseral fibers maynard wernicke are hardly outlined in the lower mammalia and attain only a mediocre development in the higher forms by way of corroboration of the foregoing let us compare the higher animals with young children this comparison is not based on a few far-fetched analogies but in a thorough resemblance in nature man during the first few years of his life has a brain but slightly differentiated especially as regards connections a very poor supply of images a very weak capacity for abstraction his intellectual development is much inferior to that of reflex instinctive impulsive and imitative movements in consequence of this predominance of the motor system the simple and imperfect images in children as in animals tend to be immediately changed into movements even most of their inventions in play are greatly inferior to those enumerated above under nine distinct heads a serious argument in favor of the prevalence of imagination of the motor type in the child is furnished by the principal part taken by movements in infantile insanity a remark made by many alienists the first stage of this madness they say is found in the convulsions that are not merely a physical ailment but a muscular delirium the disturbance of the automatic and instinctive functions of the child is so often associated with muscular disturbances that at this age the mental disorders correspond to the motor ganglionic centers situated below those parts 
that later assume the labor of analysis and of imagination. The disturbances are in the primary centers of organization, and according to the symptoms lack those analytic or constructive qualities, those ideal forms that we find in adult insanity. If we descend to the lowest stage of human life, to the baby, we see that insanity consists almost entirely of the activity of a muscular group acting on external objects. The insane baby bites, kicks, and these symptoms are the external measure of the degree of its madness. Has not Korea itself been called a muscular insanity? Doubtless, there likewise exists in the child a sensorial madness, illusions, hallucinations, but by reason of its feeble intellectual development, the delirium causes a disorder of movements rather than of images. Its insane imagination is, above all, a motor insanity. To hold that the creative imagination belonging to animals consists of new combinations of movements is certainly an hypothesis. Nevertheless, I do not believe that it is merely a mental form without foundation, if we take into account the foregoing facts. I consider it rather as a point in favor of the motor theory of invention. It is a singular instance in which the original form of creation is shown bare. If we wanted to discover it, it would be necessary to seek it where it is reduced to the greatest simplicity in the animal world. End of Second Part, Chapter 1